0: Welcome to The Story Walk, a podcast by storytellers for storytellers, and we hope that means you. Whether you identify as a storyteller with a capital S, or if you just like to tell stories in your work, say as a teacher, librarian, counsellor, or community leader. And not forgetting if you're a parent or a grandparent looking to share stories and values with your family. And since The Story Walk is presented by FEAST, the Federation of Asian Storytellers, our focus is on sharing Asian stories and celebrating tellers from the Philippines in the East to Turkey in the West and countless storytelling communities that lie in between.
1: Hello and a warm welcome to the second episode of Story Walk. I am Meher Gehi, your host, and joining me as co-host, is Ritu Vesh. At the outset, both of us, on behalf of all our six podcast producers, would like to thank you, our listeners, for showering your love and compliments post our inaugural episode last month. It's our endeavour at Story Walk to offer a storytelling treat to our listeners each time. Both Ritu and I are very excited to present to you another platter of varied flavors in the form of stories, storytellers and storytelling cultures. So, Ritu, shall we begin the feast? Let's tell our audience where are we
2: traveling to this time? Of course, Meher. In this episode of Story Walk, we travel to Malaysia. Get to savor a Malaysian story in Mizo and have a sneak peek into Asia's longest-running storytelling festival from Malaysia, our segment, Antre. Another highlight of our today's episode is that
1: all our three stories in miso, dim Sum, and fortune cookie are featured from the feast anthology of animal tales from Asia, which is called Hiss, Roar, Squeak. The stories are narrated by the authors come storytellers themselves in their unique styles.
2: We wanted our listeners to know what goes into the creation of an anthology and so in the pantry segment we had a candid conversation with the editor of His Roar Squeak. And to
1: enhance the flavors of your storytelling, this time in a story clinic we spoke to Sheila V from Singapore who offers her unique insights and answers questions sent
2: in by our listeners. Let's begin with Mizo. And listen to a Malaysian folktale narrated by Noor Azhar Isa. He's a Malaysian award-winning children's book writer, illustrator and storyteller who's passionate about literature, science and art. He's also a professional educator and with 20 years of experience in conducting professional development workshops for teachers. He is based in Nai Art Studio where he writes and illustrates books, produces works of art, and conducts training for learners of all
0: ages.
3: Once upon a time, in the jungles of Malaysia, there lived many kinds of animals. Some were big as elephants, some as small as ants, and then there were the in-betweens like goats, panthers, and tapirs. Some preferred to live alone like the mighty panther and the shy tapir, while others preferred living in groups like the goats. In this story, there were not 10, not 20, but 30 of them living happily together. They were all quite plumped except for a little skinny goat named Kurus. It is in Malay for skinny. Kurus was skinny, but he was brainy. One day, as the goats were munching the grass in the field laz- lazily, nyum, 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 nyum. they heard a fierce growl of a harimau kumbang, a panther. <sniffs> when they saw him, the goats were terrified. They shivered in fear and some even fainted. But Kurus remained calmed. He said nonchalantly. Drop your weapons, my friends. Don't shoot now. There is only one panther. We are many in number. We can catch him easily. And tonight, we will have a delicious panther for dinner. The panther was shocked. Goats hunting down and shooting a panther? Goats that are vegetarians cooking a panther for dinner? Never in his life had he heard of meat-eating goats. Terrified, the panther ran away as fast as he could. He ran and ran. <sighs> he ran and ran till he was out of breath and, and only stopped when he was about to faint. A saw him sprawl on the ground in exhaustion and as in concern. What happened, panther? I've never seen you like this before. Still shaken from his near-death experience, the petrified panther replied, I came across strange goats who hunt the panthers and eat them for dinner. So I ran away as fast as I could. What? What? <laughs> the tapi guffered. That's ridiculous. Goats eat grass and leaves just like me, said the Tuppy, unable to stop laughing. The Panther was furious with Tuppy. Did he think he was a fool? He just had the most terrible experience, and eh? And here was the Tuppy enjoying a laugh at his expense. Come, Panther, show me these wild goats. I will only believe you if I see them with my own eyes. The tapir said, chuckling. (laughs) Are you crazy? They are wild and fierce. Besides, there are so many of them. I will only go if you tie your tail to mine so I know that you will not run away when you see them, said the panther. The unbelieving tapir readily accepted the suggestion. So tapir and panther, Tied their tails together and went to the field where the goats were. The goats were busy munching the luscious grass. Yum. When they saw the panther and the tapir coming towards them with their tails tied together, Thinking quickly, Kurus said to his friends, Let's munch all these red, red berries in the bush over there and make ourselves look scary. And his friends got the message and all of them headed for the bush immediately. They munch on the ripe berries. Yum 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 yum. Yum 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 They munch on the ripe berries, allowing the red juice to stain their mouth and drip down their chins. They bleated in unison. What a record they made bleh, bleh, bleh. with mouths red as blood, these brave goats did not look anything like a friendly grass eating creatures. When Kurus gave the signal, all the thirty goats grouped together, looking fiercely at the panther and the tapir. Guru scrawled, Oh, Mr. Panther, look at our blood-red mouths. We have just finished eating a tapir. How did you know we were still hungry? And thank you for bringing this really huge and delicious tapir for us. Uh, You can leave him here with us and we wouldn't mind another one, if you please. Bring another one. The Tape was shocked at hearing this. With anger, he yelled, You trick me, Panther! And before the Panther could explain, the Tape tugged with all his might to free himself and ran away as fast as he could. And the sudden jerk broke Tape's tail. Ta- the Panther didn't stay. He ran away with Tapir's tail still tied to his. Thanks to quick-thinking kurus, the brave and brainy goat, he and his friends were safe. From then on, they were left to graze peacefully in the field. This folk tale explains why Tapirs have shot stubby tails, and why panthers have long ones. The end.
1: Now that was an engaging trickster story.
2: Indeed, Meher. I really enjoyed the rendition of this lovely folktale. tale. And
1: now that your taste buds are wet, it's time for another animal tale wrapped as a dim sum by Aparna Athreya from India. Aparna grew up in a noisy family filled with wild stories. She worked as a software engineer but the stories never really left her. She has been trained in several aspects of storytelling, counselling and creative pedagogy. Today she uses storytelling to transform educators, children and organisations.
4: The Story of the Drama Monkey There was once a little monkey who was rather naughty. He was swinging from tree to tree once when suddenly there was a crash, boom and a bang. The little monkey had fallen from the top of the tree and pichak! Oh no! His tail had broken into two. <laughs> the little monkey began to whimper as he walked to the village doctor. The doctor took one good look at the tail Out came his knife and kachak! He sliced the little monkey's tail off. The little monkey began to cry. (laughs) You took my tail, you give me your knife, you've got no choice. Well, the doctor had no choice but to give his knife. And the little monkey walked along singing this little happy song. Lost my tail, got the knife, doom, doom, doom. As he walked along, he saw a boy trying to pluck a mango from the tree. The little monkey gave his knife to the boy. The boy threw the knife right at the mango. The mango fell right out of the tree, but the knife was stuck. The little monkey began to cry. <laughs> You took my knife, you give me your mango, you've got no choice. Well, the boy had no choice but to give his mango. And the little monkey walked along singing this little happy song. Lost my tail, got the knife, doom doom doom. Gave the knife, got the mango, doom doom doom. Waala poyi, the kitty, doom doom doom. As he walked along, he saw a washerwoman who was hungry from washing all the clothes. The little monkey gave his mango to the washerwoman. She took the mango and gulped it all up happily. The little monkey began to cry. (laughs) You took my mango, you come with me, you've got no choice. Well, the woman had no choice but to go along. And the little monkey walked along singing this little happy song. Lost my tail, got the knife, doom, doom, doom. Gave the knife, got the mango, doom, doom, doom. Gave the mango, got the girl, doom, doom, doom. Waalupoyi kiti doom, doom, doom manga dum dum dum. Manga penina kitty doom dum dum. As he walked along, he saw a man extracting oil at the oil mill. He sent the washerwoman to help the man. After the woman helped him extract the oil for a while, the monkey wanted to leave, but the man refused to send the woman. The little monkey began to cry. (laughs) You took the girl, you give me the oil, you've got no choice. Well, the man had no choice but to give his oil. And the little monkey walked along singing this little happy song. Lost my tail, got the knife, doom, doom, doom. Gave the knife, got the mango, doom, doom, doom. Gave the mango, got the girl, doom, doom, doom. Give the girl, got the oil, dum, dum, dum. Vallupoi, katti kiti. dum, dum, dum. Katti kurthu, manga kiti dum, dum, dum. Manga penina kiti dum, dum, dum. Peninakurthu, yenna vangi, dum, dum, dum. As he walked along, he saw an old woman making dosha. She had run out of oil. The little monkey gave her the oil. She happily took it and made a sizzling dosha. (sniffs) The little monkey began to cry. (laughs) You took my oil. You give me the dosha. You've got no choice. Well, the old woman had no choice but to give her dosha. And the little monkey Walked along singing this little happy song. Lost my tail, got the knife, doom, doom, doom. Gave the knife, got the mango, doom, doom, doom. Gave the mango, got the girl, doom, doom, doom. Gave the girl, got the oil, doom, doom, doom. Gave the oil, took the dosha, doom, doom, doom. Bal poi, katti kitti, doom, doom, doom. Katti kurtu manga kitti dum dum dum. Manga kurtu peninakiti dum dum dum. Penninakurtu Yanna vangi doom dum dum. Yanakurtu dosha vangi doom dum dum. As he walked along, he saw a drummer. The drummer looked tired from drumming after a long hard day. The little monkey gave him the dosha. The drummer happily gobbled it up. The little monkey began to cry. You took my dosha. You give me your drum. You've got no choice. Well, the drummer had no choice but to give his drum. The little monkey took the drum, but he loved it so much that he climbed up a tree and played it all day long with a happy little song. Lost my tail, got the knife. Gave the knife, got the mango. Gave the mango, got the girl. Gave the girl, got the oil. Gave the oil, took the dosha. Gave the dosha, got the drum. Dum dum dum, valpoiyi katti kitti dum dum dum, katti manga kitti dum dum dum. माँगा कोटे पेनी ना किटी डोम 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 पेनी ना कोटे वांगी डोम 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 येन दोष Dum,
1: dum, dum. (laughs) I am still stuck with these beats of the monkey. Well, that's the magic of the three R's. Rhyme, rhythm and repetition. Which makes the story so memorable. And the way Aparna interspersed her narration with words from the regional language Malayalam, it added such a beautiful cultural nuance to the telling. Isn't it, Ritu? Yes,
2: Meher. So true. It would be great to listen to the first hand experience about what went into the making of the book from someone who's been there and has done it. We now move into our next segment, Pantry, where we speak to the editor of the feast anthology, His Roar Squeak, Deepta Vivekanand. Deepta has been telling stories for a decade. She's also the founder of Ever After Learning, a storytelling company that promotes the use of storytelling in education and advocacy. Welcome, Deepta to our show.
5: Thank you, Ritu. Lovely to be on the Feast podcast. Uh, Can you help us
2: understand what is the most important role of an editor
5: so, so an editor basically cuts out what doesn't fit, uh, what is not required for the, for the purpose of the story, um, plays up the major points of it, and in, in this case specifically, in the case of his Roar and Squeak, the stories had to be viewed from, uh, through the lens of, of them being tellable stories and not only readable stories. So that's where I think here it became a little more challenging because you had to cut out all the literary details, the redundancies, um, certainly check for plagiarism. So how much of language and how much of tellability, if there is such a word, uh, you know, so that was really the balance uh, in bringing out this book that we had to maintain.
1: That's a lot of work I see, Deepta. So how do you, how did you prioritize so many tasks? At your end?
5: So, the initial, the hard work was really in um, bringing down 44 to 17 uh, or whatever would have been the number. And um, that shortlisting process was made easy because we had the feast directors as part of the team. Shalni Doshi, who was my co editor, uh, Kiran Shah was on board too. But I think the toughest part was really making sure that the stories were all legitimate retellings of folk tales and not plagiarized from other sources so so that kind of checking had to be done for every story to ensure that it passed the test of credibility and so once this was done it was mostly about um, language and proofreading uh, yeah we also had to rewrite some portions uh, so every story went through um, after the editing process went through three different proofreaders so it's been through the the stress test, (laughs) as it were, quite a few times before it made it to the book.
1: Amazing. So what was the most creative part while editing something that was absolutely fulfilling for
5: you? Creativity sort of takes on a slightly different meaning here, you know. So I I would probably look at it as, let's say, moving a particular paragraph in a certain order or changing a particular word to make sure that it brings out the, the feel of that particular scene a lot more or maybe just playing up a certain emotion or to show, you know, the relationship between a couple of characters. But here, this is how um, I went about looking at it.
1: I think that's like a lot of balancing work, I feel, you know, retaining what the uh, authors have sent and then adding your nuances to make it appealing, right?
5: Yes, because since these are stories that are tellable, one has to keep in mind that the, the, the storytellers voice doesn't change. I cannot take another storyteller's story and, you know, chop and change and to suit my sensibility. One has to literally envision the story being told, even while editing it. So if I know a storyteller, if I've heard them before, then my my mind is actually hearing them tell that story. And so now I have to think about whether if I put this word in here, will it be characteristic of that person's storytelling style? So things like that, you know, that uh, came into play here. So, yeah, so that would be the creative bit, I guess.
2: Also, Adita, could you help our audience with uh, what things a story writer should keep in mind? for those who are planning to submit a story to any of the publishers?
5: In our case, since we're talking about folktales, um, I think one of the most important things to keep in mind is credibility of the story. So I'd say hunt, hunt, hunt for as many sources of the story as you possibly can. Because you never know, sometimes stories sound like folktales, but they're not. They're written in folktale style. So certain authors develop this as a specific style and they may have written a story that you might end up thinking is a folktale, but is really not. So, which is why it's so important to look for at least two or three sources. And um, I remember Margaret saying this in one of her webinars that uh, she did for Feast, um, that there, you need to have a minimum of at least two sources. Great if you have at many more, it only adds more value to your story. And of course, um, if English is not your first language, I don't think that should stop someone from trying to send in a story because that's what the editorial team is there for, to make all the cosmetic changes and so on.
1: Excellent. Thank you, Deetha, for being on the show and uh, giving some fabulous insights to our listeners today. For all our listeners, his Roar, Squeak is available on Google Play Store. So get your copy today. And now it's time to meet a special person from Malaysia, Fatima Hassan, who's the director come coordinator of the Penang International Kids Storytelling Festival. She's also the manager of special projects responsible for overseeing the Penang Education Council. Hello and a warm welcome, Fatima, to episode two of Story Walk. I'm so excited to be interacting with the festival director of Asia's longest running festival, the Penang International Kids Storytelling Festival or PINKS, along with my co-host Ritu Vesh. So Fatima, it would be great if you could tell us how and when PINKS began. Oh, hi,
6: Ritu. Hi, Meher. Um, Thanks for having me on the feast. Um, yes, it's been a long um, things festival. Uh, it is already the 12th year this year. And it started way back in 2005 when we had a program called Reading Day uh, with a message, Nurturing the Love for Reading. Uh, we had about 1,000 children who would gather there and do sketch, poems, stories, puzzle games and have book donation. But in 2009, we realized that we need to add value to the program. And what different can we do? Since we were organizing it in collaboration uh, with uh, World Children's Day. So we thought we should celebrate children, not let children do the things. We do it for them. So that's when uh, the idea of uh, storytelling came about. And we decided to add the element of international to include professional storytellers from local, uh, regional, as well as uh, from other countries, uh, international. And um, we decided to mesmerize children with the stories because stories uh, told by people can bring all sorts of imagination to the children. And it's currently, I wouldn't say a dying art. It's there, but in a different format. But we would like children to experience what is it like to be sitting in the at home with beanbags bags on the ground and listening to stories. So that's how uh, the whole thing came about, and we started our first, we kicked off our first festival in 2010 at a municipal park on a gr- on a field with a tent, about five tents put up. And the children, we didn't have any chairs. The children sat on the ground and the storytellers will move from tent to tent and the children will listen to the stories. And they are also allowed to move from tent to tent. So it was quite uh, open. And the uniqueness about this festival is that uh, we invite children from rural areas we bus in the students, um, and because these are the children who do not have parents who sit down and tell them bedtime stories. Uh, so, um, and the other uniqueness is that we have stories being told in many languages by using kamishibai method or pop book stories. So even in French, German, uh, Tamil, Malay, and English. Yeah. So um, that's. Uh, Kind of the thing that how the festival started, and it's a two-day affair. We have the first day the festival, which is for free, and then the second day we uh, have the storytelling technique workshop for wannabe storytellers to learn how to tell stories. So mm-hmm. we have for children and also adults, and basically that is what all Penang Education is all about: providing a platform for a lively exploration of new ideas. That are creative and thinking out of the box. Yeah. So, uh, thank you, Fatima, for acquainting us with the format. And so, how is Pings funded? Majority of the fund comes from Penang State Government, where Penang Education Council is part of the program that was uh, created by State Government under the uh, Executive Council portfolio for Education. So, there's a fund to do programs. So, we set aside very nominal fund. It's about uh, 30 to 20,000 ringgit Malaysia. Uh, And then the rest we get uh, private sponsors like for hotel accommodation. In the beginning of the years, we had the hoteliers Association coming together and providing us uh, accommodation for free for the storytellers to stay. Uh, And then we negotiate with bus drivers, food, because when we bus in students, we have to provide food and we give them certificate of participation. Uh, so uh, we negotiate prices and tell them this is a not-for-profit event. So we do not charge any fees, but we do have a box, uh, donation box, so anyone can drop in, but uh, we don't actually rely on that. And the other part of the funding comes from our storytelling technique workshop. That's the only event that happens on the second day where we charge each participant. So we get that sum of money and we get a lot of sponsors from various people, either in cash or
2: kind. Awesome. So in the past few years, like we are aware that many of the Feast members have been featured in this prestigious uh, you know, Pinks Festival. So many of the uh, storytellers out there, they want to be a part of Pinks. Is there a way uh, that you can tell our audience how people from outside, uh, you know, can become members of uh, Pinks? Yeah, there are
6: uh, many people from the piece who have been part of our festival, that's right. Um, the other way, one way was some of the storytellers went back after the first year of the festival and told their group of friends so that they share uh, my email address. Um, one Those unknown about the festival, what they do is they Google and they find our Facebook page. We have a Facebook page called Penang International Kids Storytelling Festival and they send a message there uh, through the messenger and ask whether they would be interested. So all they have to do is send us a bio data about themselves or a short write-up. And uh, uh, or we also, because we are not familiar with their style of storytelling, so we require them to give us a short five-minute video clip and send it to us. So we have a review committee, uh, only about three of us. Uh, we will watch the video and see whether the style and the rendition or the narration of the story fits in with our style of festival. Uh, that's when i will be as the director write an email to them whether they are accepted or whether we can consider them for the next year but it, the, the consideration also depends on which country they come from because we have limited budget uh, therefore we cannot fly them in from quite far of a country or they will have to all travel in a budget um fund yeah
2: So uh, in Malaysian education, um, I was very inquisitive to know, do you use stories as a pedagogical tool like uh, you know folk tales or any other kind of stories, do you include them in the teaching methodology also?
6: Um, Yes they do, they do have storytelling as a tool uh, but it depends on The teachers themselves on what type of stories they pick. Uh, Back in those years, it was all folk tales, all the stories. But now, once in a while, yes, some one or two stories that are very famous, they will use it. Uh, Basically, the language teachers Mm -hmm. will use it as their tool to to, uh, create reading habits, getting literary, uh, and getting the children to participate. And furthermore, that our Ministry of Education also has a storytelling competition at state, district level, state level, and national level. So for that, the children are groomed uh, in storytelling
1: to go and participate. Yeah, excellent. I'm I'm so amazed to hear uh, all of this. So uh, Fatima, I've read that stories of uh, this character called Sangkanchil. These are a series of traditional fables about a clever mouse deer. They're very popular in Malaysia, it seems. Uh, could you tell us something more about it? And uh, are there any more such commonly used characters used in stories?
6: Sunken Chil is a animal fable. It's very famous because it's it's a very cute animal and it's very naive and humble. So... It's a character that uh, children can connect with because of its cuteness, almost like a Bambi kind of story. So they have just similarity. But I think <coughs> not just in Malaysia, but I think it's also in Indonesia, some, uh, is quite famous as well. Um, the word Sunganchil itself is, um, is an honorary, honorific title for it, Sung. Yeah. And uh usually I don't know whether they have many other stories, but usually they pair C- sank kanchil with other animals like sank and dan boya, which means um the mouse deer and the crocodile, and they pair it with tiger, elephant, uh farmer, uh, those kind of yeah, they usually pair it and there's many uh there's a series of stories of sank that they have. And uh, I think it's mostly famous and used is in schools as well as uh, in community because it carries moral values from the humbleness and how it overcome obstacles. So that's to impart knowledge to the children. Yeah. Other than that, there are other stories that are epic like Hikayat Hangtua. Uh, Hikayat is basically epic stories. Hangtua is a, a Malay legendary a warrior during the South, Malay Sultanate days in 15th century. So there are five of them. Hang Tua, Hang Kasturi, Hang Lekir, Hang and Hang Jabat. So there's a story uh, about him that is also quite famous. Yeah, And and many other legendary stories like there's Pak Pandir, a, 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 a very um, naive old man and the story about him. But I'm not sure whether these stories are still being told in the schools and community now. But back in those days, yeah, these are the stories uh, that and legendary stories like Hang Lipo um, and Putri Gunung Ledang and um, Mashuri about uh, a lady in the Kadar state. So each state will have its own story. But some covers basically all the states. And what is the primary language of storytelling in Malaysia? Malay. Because Malay is our national language. Um, But in uh, besides Malay, if I may add, uh, we also have English as our second language. And also in the vernacular schools, we have Mandarin and Tamil. And nowadays, uh, some schools also have
2: Arabic uh, storytelling. Thanks a lot, Fatima, for taking time out for our audience and explaining and giving insight information about Pings and what storytelling means to uh, your region. please says thank you to Fizz uh, for
6: inviting us to be part of this podcast. Uh, we appreciate it very much. And we look forward to see more Feast members uh, on our Pings Festival.
1: Today in Story Clinic, we have a simply amazing expert, Sheila V. Who is one of the founding directors of Feast and fondly known as a godmother of Singapore storytelling. So Sheila, my first question is, At what point should the storyteller start using
0: or taking help of a mic? It's an interesting question. When you get into a space, um, you have to really um, look around you. You have to decide how many people there are. You also have to test the acoustics. And what I would say really is you need to do that beforehand. It's not at the last minute. You need to have decided before you go whether you're going to use a mic or not. Of course, you may have to change that decision midway, but preparation is all. Obviously, there are, there are places where you're going to have to use a mic. If you are doing a school assembly when there's a thousand kids, you need a mic. But in a, if it's a small group of kids in an enclosed room, then I would not use a mic if I could avoid doing it because the tendency is for it to be too loud. You can use a mic very subtly. And in fact, um, I actually do like using mics because sometimes when you use a mic, you don't have to project your voice and you can get the subtleties of the voice to come out.
2: So, Sheila, some of the storytellers were uh, sending us questions regarding what uh, influence does the outfit have on uh, the storytelling experience?
0: I always think very carefully about what I'm going to wear. I will not wear dark colors if I'm going to a preschool group. If I'm doing adult storytelling, you know, it would be a very adult outfit. I don't wear costumes. I think I was traumatized by costumes when I first started and I had, I did storytelling in a shopping center for Christmas and I was made to wear this elizabethan dress in red and yellow satin complete with a white ruff around my neck and i was wandering around the shopping center wearing that and that, that totally traumatized me <laughs> but <laughs> apart from that i think sometimes costumes can be a distraction you have to decide what sort of a storyteller you are or at least what sort of a storyteller you are being in that particular at that particular time what I mean is sometimes you are there as an entertainer and it's very um, interactive. Um, maybe you have puppets, you have props, and then uh, um, something that is really flamboyant might fit in. But some of the time you are there to get into the children's minds, the adults' minds, to bring them into the theater of the mind. And in that case, you don't want something that's going to stand out, that's going to distract them. You want to be the storyteller who disappears because they remember the story, not you. So I think it's thinking carefully about the occasion and remembering that sometimes costumes can be. I mean, actually, costumes can be very useful for a storyteller. I know a a storyteller's who have very flamboyant costumes and it gets them bookings. But you have to think, do you want to be booked for your costume (laughs) or for your storytelling? So I think it's something you have to think carefully and obviously it must be comfortable. I completely
1: agree with that, Sheila. How should the storyteller decide whether to sit
0: or stand while telling the story? Well, that's an easier one. Um, there's two aspects. One is, what sort, again, what sort of a storyteller you are. I know some storytellers who find it very difficult to sit down. And they have a very physical style. If you have a very physical style, you have to fix it so that you can stand. And you have to put your audience far enough away from you so that is possible. And in most occasions, that is possible. So is again, it's pre-preparation, thinking, you know, about what you'll need. And sometimes it's actually sort of almost bullying your clients or jollying them along to make sure that they move the audience to where you want them. Because you don't let your, your clients dictate where the audience sits, because sometimes that can ruin it. You don't want to be, tower, you know, towering over children who are sitting on the floor. If you if you want to stand, you need to move them back. Of course, there are times when it's not possible, but usually it is. If you, you know, if you are um, not not authoritative enough, or you know, if you, if you if you just ask nicely but firmly, <laughs> people will do that. Then there are storytellers who feel more comfortable sitting. And I think there's nothing wrong with that, except if you've got a very large audience. If you've got a very large audience, sitting is not going to work. If you're up on a stage with a thousand kids, sitting doesn't really work. You need to be as big a presence on the stage as you can, you can be in order to reach them. Even better, be on the floor uh, and be closer to them um so there's there's those factors and also how much you move you might start sitting off sometimes i would start sitting off uh, but i would make sure the children are further back because i know later on in a story or one of the stories i'm telling i want to get up and move around the audience so again you arrange the seating uh, in advance so that you can do that so there's no hard and fast rule except you know i would say don't sit down if it's a a, a ginormous audience <laughs>
2: Thanks Sheila for joining us on Story Walk today. Great insights that will probably, you know, help our storytellers listening out there. We really appreciate you taking time and talking to us on Story Walk. You're welcome. Thanks. And it's time for a final segment and the last story for today by Shalini Doshi from Singapore. She's been a regular at 398.2 Storytelling Festival since the first one in 2015. She has facilitated training workshops for teachers and the National Library Board in Singapore to train library volunteers in the art of storytelling. A workshop presenter at the Second Feast Conference in Bengaluru in 2019 Shalini loves sharing stories and having stories shared with her.
7: The Snake in the Banyan Tree, retold by Shalini Doshi. This is a story that um, many people, you know, because it's a Malay, it's, it's to do with the Malay community. So some will say that it its origins are in Malaysia, while some will dispute that the origins are in Singapore. Now, you know, Singapore was part of Malaysia a long time ago, and perhaps that's where this little uh, argument, shall we say, uh, in the origins or about the origins comes about, whatever it is. Uh, The story is exciting. I loved it the first time I read it. And um, I was really excited to be able to share this with everyone. I mean, when I submitted it, I wasn't really sure that it would be chosen. And there were, of course, concerns. I mean, uh, it can get a little violent, but we toned it down. We managed to tone it down uh, because we loved the story. Uh, It did bring a little bit of a change of pace and tone. And so here you are with, uh, here I am, (laughs) with the snake and the banyan tree. An enormous old banyan tree stood at the entrance of a small village in old Malaysia. Nothing odd about that, except that every night a haunting tune would be heard weaving its way around the village and sending everyone into deep, uninterrupted sleep. When they woke up the next morning, they would always see the bones of their missing chickens and goats at the foot of the tree. The villagers were stumped. How did this happen? Who ate the animals? How did they sleep through all of this? Whatever it was, they knew one thing for sure. The tree was bad news, and they had to get rid of it. We have to destroy that tree! It is cursed! exclaimed Ishak anxiously. He was always the first to fall asleep, as his home was closest to the tree. I have lost all of my chickens. How do I earn any money now? sobbed Daoud, looking down at his hungry children. One by one, all the villagers voiced their urgent concerns. The village chief, or Panghulu, listened in silence and knew he had to do something about this matter immediately. Grabbing his spear, he ordered the men to surround the tree with flaming torches. As the entire village gathered around the tree, the men began flinging their torches at the tree. The moment they did so, the same eerie tune resonated from it. Those nearest the tree fell asleep then, then, and soon... Everyone fell victim to its song. Everyone except Ali. Being deaf, he was completely unaffected by the music. He watched in horror as a long, hideous, slimy snake with red, patchy skin slithered out of the crackling branches hissed menacingly, eyes fixed on its prey. Wake up! Wake up! Ali cried, shaking Ishak, and then doubt, but in vain. Then he saw the village well in the distance. As the snake slid along towards the chickens and goats, Ali quickly drew a bucket of cold water from the well and. flashed it on some of the villagers. The men woke up with a start. What happened? exclaimed Dowd. However, before anyone could explain, the snake came for them. All the men banded together and rained hard blows on the terrible creature. Although it looked completely unhurt, the men's actions were enough to send the snake slithering back to where it had come from. They had won, but only temporarily. Everyone knew the snake would be back. They had to think of a solution. But what? That night, the villagers all had a vision as they lay in bed. Daoud ran excitedly to Hussein's house the next morning and announced, I know how to kill the snake. We have to get special fire stones that will burn when water is poured on them, Hussein completed. How did you know that? Daoud asked, slightly disappointed. We all had the same dream, Daoud, Hussein smiled. but. They could only carry out this plan the following month, when the wicked serpent would fall into a deep sleep. Days slipped by. Then weeks. The whole village busied itself in the preparations. Children were sent to look for firestones. Men sharpened their axes and spears. Women sharpened kitchen knives and got their mortar and pestle ready for combat. The villagers wanted to spend all their energies saving their village and their animals. As dusk drew in on the appointed day, the villagers eagerly gathered again around the banyan tree. At the chief's signal, Everyone started hurling the firestones at the tree and flinging water at the same time. The moment the stones hit the tree, it shook violently as it caught fire. The villagers gulped as they saw the snake emerge through the flames. The chilling music followed, but this time the villagers were ready. "'Stuff your ears with cotton and cloth!' yelled Ishak. As one, the villagers attacked the snake before it could do any harm. The snake put up a valiant fight, but to no avail. It was no match for the determined villagers. When the snake finally collapsed to the ground, A loud cheer rang through the village. Hooray! Everyone danced and sang. Some of the men picked up the still snake, gingerly at first, then with greater courage. Let's throw it far away from the village, said one of the men. Wait, wait, I have a better idea. Let's Skin the snake and make a drum, exclaimed another. And so they did. They stretched its skin over a large bowl. May I beat it, Aya? Daoud's little son asked, curious. Of course, Dawood replied gleefully. And the little boy beat it once. Soon, everyone wanted a go. As each villager struck the skin, it made a surprisingly interesting sound. In fact, it was wonderful! And so the Kompang came to be. Till today, the Kompang is played at all important Malay celebrations. From fear and worry came rhythm and beauty.
1: From fear and worry came rhythm and beauty. Wow, what a valiant story to end the episode with. And it's a wrap for today. We at Storywalk have received mails from a lot of you expressing your interest to tell stories in our upcoming episodes. We have made note and we shall get in touch with you as and when the opportunity comes up. However, we are keenly looking for storytellers who would like to join the team as producers and contribute towards the curation and editing of the upcoming episodes. Do get in touch if you are interested. Also, do write to us on FeastStory at gmail.com or StoryWalk at gmail.com to let us know how you relished today's platter. I mean, today's episode. StoryWalk is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other leading podcasting platforms. Subscribe to The Story share it with your friends and network. And remember to follow us for a Storylicious tour through Asia. This is Meher Gehi and on behalf of my co-host for this episode, Ritu Vesh, and other co-producers of The Story podcast, we thank you for listening. See you next month as we travel to India another diverse land of food, cultures and stories.